One, two, one, two. Now here we go. You know what time it is? Welcome to another episode of the Frankie Lee Podcast. Our mission to empower others to break patterns, flip perspectives, so that together we have clarity, direction, and success way beyond what we ever previously thought possible. Here's your host, Frankie Lee. First things first, guys, before we get started with this podcast, do me a solid favor. And subscribe to this on whatever platform you're listening to it right now. Whether that's YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. I'd appreciate if you just hit that subscribe button. And it lets me know that the content that I'm putting out for you guys is hitting your ears at the right time. Much love. This podcast is sponsored by contentremover.com. So whether you're looking to remove any images, videos, search results, fake Instagram accounts, get in touch with us at contentremover.com. Welcome back to the Frankie Lee podcast. Today, guys, you should definitely check this one out on YouTube because we're in a different different location. We're in Melbourne today. And I've got one of, one of these guys on here today that's done bits in the commercial real estate space, um, put together a development portfolio of over $150 million in commercial real estate. Honestly, this guy is going to be like one of the guests that's going to go on to do billions and billions of dollars in this space. Mr. Oscar Ledlin, Welcome to your house, mate. <laughs> Brother, what an introduction. Thank you for having, you, having me on the show. Welcome to my home. Mate, well, well mate, it's, it's a beautiful home, isn't it? It's a beautiful home. It's Thank nice. You, yeah. like, Melbourne's one of these places, yeah. I woke up this morning thinking, oh, you know, get out of the house, be nice and warm, freezing, freezing my tits off straight away. It's, it's perfect because yesterday afternoon, I'm red raw from the sun, you know, 29 degrees, and then this morning you can throw a shirt on and... Some pants and uh, and taste the eighteen degrees of uh, Melbourne morning. Yeah, that eighteen degrees hit me coming from the Gold Coast, and then coming here and being eighteen degrees. I'm like, mate, it's not for me, not for me. But, mate, I think the best place for us to start with you. Obviously, you're, you you've done you've done so much. I mean, let's let's start by giving people a bit of an insight into obviously how far you've come to be in the position you're at now, going forward. Because, obviously, you started out way back working on the tools concrete and didn't you you're concrete and you're boxing as well yep give give the give the people a bit of an insight into obviously how it all came together for you and started because i think i really want people to understand your kind of origin journey absolutely so i'm a concreter by trade i grew up working part times uh, part-time weekends school holidays that sort of thing for my old man he had a concreting business so i was on the tools for him learning the trade and I was boxing professionally and working two other part-time jobs as well. Then I finished school and I had a keen interest in business. I just loved the ideology of commerce and economics and and making a quid. So I um, set out to do a business degree at Monash while still um, fighting professionally and working for my old man on the tools and these other couple of jobs. Towards the end of my business degree, I sort of sat down with my old man and was scoping out what I was going to do when I finished uni. And uh, he said to me, he's like, listen, um, my older brother's working in the business with me as well, for my old man. He said, boys, this company's yours for the taking. I can guide you and you can grow it into sort of whatever you want it to be. And I said, dad, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity and the job's been great, but I'm getting as far away from the concrete as I can. Um, I'm moving into property development. So... I developed a bit of an interest in development or, or the very small glimpses of it that I knew. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Just from what I'd seen, you know, we would come to site and would be you know, almost the first ones on site and would start with the foundations and the slab and stuff like that. And then we would come back 
nine, 12, 18 months later and would do the driveways and the footpaths and stuff. And so you'd see the start and the end of a project. See the transformation. I had no idea of the financial side of it. I had no idea if anybody was making any money or anything like that, but I could just... I just had this vision of being able to show up with a, you know, almost a blank canvas in a, in a site and then, you know, delivering what you thought was going to be best. Um, one, for the environment, for the opportunity that the property presented, and then two, from a business point of view, what is going to make sense and what's going to make money. So that sparked my interest and um, I said to Dad, listen, I'm happy to keep working for you until I get this thing up and going on the side, but, um, you know, concreting isn't a, isn't a lifetime play for me. It's a, it's a means to an end. So... I set out to, to get into the development space and I had um, scoped a little duplex opportunity in the area while running. Obviously, in boxing, I was doing a lot. Doing of, the six-miler? Yeah, exactly right. Bro. I was running 10, 10 kilometres four mornings a week um, and I was just sort of scouting opportunities and, and trying to sort of get a lay of the land in my local area. I found this little duplex site and I'd saved um, about 50 grand while working for my old man in these other jobs and fighting. And I went to the bank... And I, uh, I almost slapped the 50 grand down on the table, bro. I was, I was pretty enthusiastic about um, what I was going to do. But um, much to my dismay, the, the bank manager crushed my, crushed my spirits and said, well, your deposit is enough for the, for the opportunity. Um, you can't show serviceability. So uh, my income being multiple um, jobs, you know, casual, part-time, um, the boxing, some of it was cash. So it was very... Um, all, yeah, it was, all over the gas. Yeah. yeah, exactly right. So she said, you can't show serviceability. At the time, I didn't know what serviceability meant, but she explained it, and um, I sort of went back to the drawing board. I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to register a business. So I registered Leadland Developments at the end of 2013 and um, went back into the bank and asked for the business banking manager this time. I sat down, I said, I'm a businessman now. I'm ready to borrow some money. And they looked at my little ACN that I'd passed over in my certificate of um, company registration. They said, this is a two-day-old uh, company, has no trading history, we're not lending you any money. So I was like, fuck, I'm, I'm, I'm done. Done before I'm even started. <laughs> I sat with the business bank manager and I said, mate, I've got the money, like, I've got the deposit, what's the problem? And he said, you need somebody who can show serviceability to be, give the bank confidence that you're going to be able to repay the funds. I said, how did I do that? He said, you need to find somebody who can go guarantor on your loan. I said, oh, well, what, how, do, how do I do that? And he said, oh, it's usually a parent or something like that. I'm like, oh, I don't want handouts. But, um, so I went back to the drawing board again. And I spoke to my dad and I said, Dad, I found an opportunity. I've got a deposit. But I need you to go guarantor. Do you want to partner and go into this project together? And he said, I'm interested in partnering with you, but if we're doing something, we're doing something commercial so my company can pour the concrete. And that was the segue into commercial property. Yeah, I love that. So he actually really did you a favour right there and then, didn't he? Absolutely, yeah. Because otherwise you was going to go residential. Yeah, and, and to be honest, residential was where my focus was initially because it was all I knew. And I think that sort of is still demonstrated in the general public's view now of residential versus commercial property investment, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. But when everybody thinks property investment, they think townhouses, apartment houses. Nobody thinks shops, childcare centres, warehouses, offices. So... Um, the, the segue and that nudge that he gave me into commercial property was the best thing for me because just the way I'm wired and the way my interests are with business, commercial property was a no-brainer. It just it hadn't been on my radar yet. Yeah, so when did, so obviously you get nudged, into, you get nudged into, into the commercial space now. So you've gone in there with your dad, you're 50-50, you, 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 you start signing these things, you start doing commercial projects. But 
at what point then was it you realised about like the commercial versus, versus residential argument and how it was better, so much better for you as as a business to be in the commercial space rather than the residential? When was it that it, that kind of clicked and that kind of penny dropped? I think there's really two aspects to it. One is the element of my business being in the commercial space and then the second one is from an investment point of, view, point of view and building a portfolio in the commercial versus residential space. So from a development point of view, um, from all accounts and what I hear, the margins are very similar. You know, there's residential developers making good margins and there's commercial developers making good margins. It's just a different space to do business. There's a lot of different elements to it, to each sector, but the general gist of it is that you buy a site, you unlock value through um, planning approval and you deliver a built form to you know, increase the value of the land above the cost and, and what's left is your profit. In terms of the investment space, it was really as I sort of got to my mid-20s and I started getting a lot of pressure from family, friends, you know, just all my loved ones to, oh, you've got to buy a house. And at the, this point in time, I was keeping my commercial endeavours much quieter. Um, just naturally, I wasn't in the spotlight as much. And um, so my family didn't know the type of financial attainment I was creating outside of your typical bricks and mortar first home investment. So I kept it at a distance for a little while, but it kept being, you know, every family barbecue, every time I'd catch up with mates, it would be like, are you going to buy a house? You're going to buy a house. Everybody yeah, would be yeah, celebrating yeah, yeah. buying a house. And then I really looked into it after that. It wasn't just a, oh, I understand commercial property. I think it's better than residential. It was, I did, you know, extensive research. I've um, explored what sort of uh, property sectors have performed well over the last 30 years, 20 years, 10 years, and even more recently, the last five years. And I did the numbers on, you know, what sort of leverage you're getting with the bank, what sort of outgoings you're paying as a landlord, and, and mapped it out. And from a financial point of view, it's a no-brainer, commercial property... Um, particularly the sectors of commercial property that I'm focusing on, have trumped residential you know, in every aspect in the recent 10, 15 years especially. So just, just, just drill into those specific sectors that you're, that you're talking about that have trumped. So you're talking childcare centres, you're talking um, like, the, like the flexi units that you build. So what, what are they classed as? Like your, your e-com type spaces? Yeah, so I mean it's an industrial commercial two type land base and then... The, the sectors are mixed-use business parks, so um, warehousing, offices, um, less focus on the CBD. CBD offices are in a bad way with COVID, but city fringe, suburban office, and then the industrial space. So warehousing has you know, incredibly outperformed um, residential in the recent 10 years, and in the recent three years, it's, it's not even a comparison. So, yeah, and that's what I want to drill into, the... the when you say it's vastly outperformed by how much on a percentage basis? Well, the exact percentage basis is is a little bit harder to delve right into because there's two there's multiple elements of it as you know you know there's the returns of the investment while you're holding it. So in terms of re- return on your investment while you're holding it, commercial is you know it's two or three times better. You know the yields of commercial properties compared to residential are much higher. But even more than that, as a residential landlord, 
within your property, you have to pay the council rates. If there's body corporate or strata fees, you have to pay those as the landlord. If anything breaks within the property, you have to fix it for your tenant. So there's all those outgoing costs that you have to pay. Yep. Whereas under a commercial lease, when the council rates come in, you give them to your tenant, your tenant's obliged to pay for them. When your strata fees come in, your tenant has to pay for them. When you know a hot water system or a roller door breaks, your tenant has to pay for it. So um, the net in investment return while you're holding it is much more impressive in a commercial application or a commercial investment. And then the other side of it is capital growth, where it used to be like, oh, you know, commercial properties are great for income, but the capital growth isn't there. But it's just a naive way of looking at it because in the recent 10 years, the capital growth in these um, commercial sectors that I mentioned has outperformed um, residential. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, love, I love the fact that you've gone into that because when I was young, right, Obviously, I was in. I was doing my apprenticeship in carpentry, and like I was saying to you before, I was taught to buy buy a house. So, at 18, 19 years old, I bought my first apartment, nice penthouse apartment, on top of this apartment complex. Beautiful. I've paid it off, but it was the worst investment of my life because I've put my money into something that's that's not got capital growth because it's an apartment, right? So you're not got capital growth. You've got to pay your bot, you like your land rent fees, mm. kind of thing, because you don't own the land. You got you're on a leasehold, mm. essentially in England. I I just think that a lot of people are taught to go, go to school, get a job, buy a house, all this indoctrination bullshit, mm. and it's not it's not right for everybody. Like you don't always have to go out and buy a fucking house. Absolutely, and I mean, and the other side of it is, you know, the finances side of it. I can talk about it all day, and um, and I'm sure we will. But the flip side of it is the non-financial hang-ups that come with getting out of school, getting a secure job, and then just rushing to commit to this 25, 30-year-old, 35-year-long uh, mortgage. Um, you know, the, the, the stronghold of putting yourself in that position at such a young age, it just doesn't make sense to me. And, you know, you're 21, 22, 23 years old, you commit to this property at such an evolving time in your life when... You may or may not be married yet. You may or may not have a pet yet. You may or may not have kids yet. And yeah, you're committing yeah, yeah. to this particular property for a number of years. I don't care what anyone says about the market, but when you're paying stamp duty going in and agents fees going out and then capital gains tax, you don't want to be moving in and out of properties in really in less than four or five years. And the average household is owned by one person for seven years. So that commitment at a time in your life where... You should be exploring different careers. You should have the confidence of being able to say, I'm going to leave this career and try this new one without having the bank on your back saying, don't forget your mortgage is coming, don't forget your mortgage is coming. You know? yeah, yeah, um, yeah. New relationships, you'll, you'll enter relationships, you'll exit relationships. Homeownership is going to put pressure on that without going too far in it for, for a lot of different reasons. You'll have kids, you'll want a bigger backyard, you know, you'll move geographic areas for work or for your loved ones you want a new house you don't want to have to be traveling hours for work and to visit family yeah, and all that yeah, sort of stuff yeah, yeah. just doesn't make sense from home ownership to just commit to one residence for such a long period of time early in your life well put it this way when you when you when you're in your early 20s or 18 19 20s yeah um you you'll you'll buy a place in an area that is your maximum capacity at that time so you'll go and max yourself out. It's probably not even the area you want to live in for the rest of your life. I mean, me, like, you know, sometimes I want to be in Melbourne. Sometimes I want to be in the Gold Coast. Sometimes I want to be in Sydney. Sometimes I want to be fucking in England. I'm just going to rent where I'm going to stay. 
because it, people say rent money is dead money. It's not dead money. It's flexibility. Mm. It's the flexibility to be able to, to be able to do what the fuck you want to do when you want to fucking do it. And then you should have you, your money essentially in things that, that, that pay you that are actually fucking cash flow producing that are actually beneficial to you, to you long term, which is like the commercial real estate, which is like some cryptos and all this kind of stuff. Your residential home is not an asset. That's what I need people to understand when they listen to this podcast. Your residential home is not a fucking asset at all. I don't, I don't care if you buy it for fucking two million and then 10 years later it's worth six million. And you think, yeah, it's six million. The cost of opportunity for you mm. paying a mortgage on a two million dollar fucking home in the time that you've owned it is fucking phenomenal. Mm. And like, I just, I just don't think people get it. And then to unlock that value, and then what? You know what I mean? You've, your house has gone from two million to six million. If you're going to sell it, you're going to pay an agent to sell it. And then, if it's not your principal place of residence, you're going to pay pay incredible tax on it. But even if you don't, what are you going to replace it with? You know, the house is worth six million now. You want to buy the house next door, it's going to be worth six million as well. Or you're going to have to downsize. And, and then what's the whole point of the exercise? So Yeah, yeah. It, 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 this, this Australian dream in real estate, in, on, on the residential side of it, is, is fucking bollocks. It's just, it doesn't make any sense. Because when, when your house gets the capital growth, like you just said, and you, and you accentuate that, yes, all right, I know it's a tax, if it's your home that you're living in, it's a tax-free event, yeah, wicked. But everything else in your market's all just fucking flown up too. But if you get a fucking childcare centre, that's a different. Mm. You're, you're talking about three to four, five hundred k a year to rent one of them out. Yeah, that's yeah. a fucking massive chunk of cash that's coming in. Absolutely, from a project you own. And then, and then back on that financial side of it, you know, trying to build wealth through property, through residential. I mean, it's just structurally flawed because what people say is residential oh yeah it doesn't make you any cash while you're holding it and it actually costs you money while you're holding it which is a great tax deduction it's like all right well how do you ever make money out of it if it's costing you each year you own it oh you sell it at the end and you get the capital growth and it's like well if you have to sell the property to release the capital growth then you incur all of the expenses of selling that property and if you're building a portfolio it's not your principal place of residence so you unlock the capital growth of this property by paying an agent to sell it and then you're hit with the taxes you know you're likely paying you know 49 cents in the dollar for every profit you've made on the property and if you've claimed the depreciation expenses over the period that you've held it well then you've probably got a bigger paper gain that you're paying tax on there anyway and it's really structurally flawed from the profit sense and then again from you know, leverage is huge in property. How much the bank will, bar- will yeah, loan yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The more residential properties you're taking on in your portfolio, when they're negatively geared, the bigger you're having to top up each month um, with your mortgage over and above what the rent is. So every time you take on additional property, the bank's like, oh, we don't know if we can loan you any more because you're servicing the loans on these three other negatively geared properties. Where with commercial, you know, each property that you take on, you might have a $2,000 a month mortgage and be receiving $3,000 a month in rent. So there's a $1,000 a month surplus that is helping build your income. So every commercial property you get, you go back to the bank and say, I want to borrow to buy this one. They say, great, every property that you add to your portfolio is more surplus rent you have at the end of each month after paying your mortgage, and it just helps build your ability to repay them. So um, it's just chalk and cheese. It's just completely different. It's a completely different game. But let's, I want to talk into that negative gearing because it's something I just don't, I cannot fucking fathom. I've been in Australia for eight years. I cannot fucking fathom negative gearing. I just do not understand the, 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 the whole point of that. So a doctor who's fucking earning like three, five hundred grand a year or whatever they, whatever they earn, some specialist doctor, 
was telling me that he'd got this fucking property negatively geared. And I'm like, mate, you, you, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, that's to offset my tax bill. I'm like, are you fucking crazy? Mm. Why, why would you, why would, I don't, explain to me that. I don't understand it. I don't understand the principle of it. Uh, to be honest, it's, it's a scam. You know, it, the, <laughs> the, whole, the whole notion behind it is like, when you remove all the, the glitz and glory of it, it's about having a shitty asset or a shitty investment and offsetting that against the income you're making. Exactly right. It's about saying, well, this property, it costs me $30,000 a year to keep. By the time I collect the rent and pay the mortgage and all the outgoings expenses, it's costing me $30,000 a week. Well, I'll tell you that's a shit investment. Yeah. But what our financial negative gearing experts have told us is, well, that 30 grand can be used as a tax deduction against your income. It's like, fuck, you're better off having a property that puts money in your pocket and, and then paying tax on it. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. It just, it just to me, it, the whole thing, the whole, the whole negative gear and even the word just doesn't sound right to me. Yeah. Just does not sit well with me that you'd buy something to lose money on. You may as well do what the rest of you do and buy Louis Vuitton bags. Yeah. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, if you really want to lose money. Yeah. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Because like, you, there's, there's, no, there's no fucking point. And next to the Australian dream, it's the most widely accepted shitty advice that the, you know, the Australian investment world has accepted. And within parts of my circle, I hear people, like you say, you know, largely professionals earning two, three, four hundred thousand dollars a year raving about negative, negative gearing because they're bringing their, ta- their tax down. But like you say, they might as well be wasting the money somewhere else. When you elevate a few levels and you start talking to people who are worth 50, 70, 100 million dollars, we laugh about negatively gearing. And it's like it's this sick inside joke of like, <laughs> look at all these people buying shitty investments and being like, yay, I lost $30,000 on my investment this year. It's going to help me save $10,000 yeah, in tax. Yeah, it's yeah. like, how does that make any sense? Buy, buying something to, that you lose money on to save on your taxes is a stupid idea mm. because you'd just rather pay the tax. That, yeah. that, I'm, glad, I'm glad we went over that because I think a lot of people need to fucking hear that. And, and without going too far in it and getting too you know, into the complexities of it, the depreciation advantage or the negative gearing aspect that you claim throughout the years, that comes off the cost of the asset when you sell it. So you pay tax, you've got the tax advantages along the way, but it's not like they're any tax advantage in absolute terms. They're a tax advantage until you sell that property and then the cost of that asset has been written down by those losses that you've accumulated over the years. So you pay larger tax when you sell it anyway. So it's really just you, you're claiming a tax saving now to repay that tax saving in, at a future point in time, which everybody overlooks as well. But yeah, and with, with what you're doing in the, in the commercial space, obviously you develop these commercial sites, you sell off a few, you keep a few, you go again, you keep a few more, and eventually you'll just keep more and keep more and keep more. But you'll, you'll, you'll depreciate them, but you will never sell them, so you'll never have to pay the tax, right? Exactly right. And this is the beautiful thing about commercial property because it's like you're building a portfolio and you're building that, you know, as close to passive income as it gets. But in residential, you have to sell the property to unlock that value. And that's when you pay the selling agent fees and you pay the the tax on, on the capital gain. Whereas in commercial property, as the value of that asset increases, the return on that asset increases as well. You know, we have um, we either have CPI or fixed rental increases built into the leases. So each year you're getting a little bit more rent, a little bit more rent, a little bit more rent. So if you bought a commercial property for say five hundred thousand dollars, 
and in 10 years' time it's worth $3 million, you are actually getting income on that $2.5 million capital gain without having to pay tax on it. And you'll never pay tax on it if you sell it. And why would you sell it? Because in terms of a bricks-and-mortar investment, there's no better place to put your money than in this commercial property. So, you know, we see people that go really hard in the residential space and we hear of them, you know, adding 20 properties to their portfolio over four years and they're extremely leveraged and stuff like that. If through incredible structure, a little bit of luck and, you know, making some good calls, they make a decent capital gain after paying fees, taxes and everything like that, you know where they're going to put their property at the end of it? Are there money at the end of it? Commercial property. Because that's where it gets income. Because there's no point holding that residential property for a long period of time because the income is just so low. Fucking hell. Yeah. It's, it's just mad, isn't it? It is. It the is whole thing is just... You get, it gets me so hyped up because I'm like, yeah. what wait, are wait, we wait, looking wait. at, you know? Because I, I knew... I knew I knew residential f- for my personal and, and owning properties like in my own name. I knew that was a stupid idea because yeah. I'd done it and I thought, what a fucking idiot. I wish I'd known better at 18, 19, but I didn't. Yeah. When I started to learn about, learn about more about the property game and, and, and investing money as I was getting in like 28, 29, 30 and onwards, I was like, right, I'm not going to buy another fucking property. And then obviously I started to speak to you about commercial and understand, understand ah, there is, an, there is actual property you can actually make money out of. Mm. I was like, fucking, it all kind of, the penny dropped for me. Because like, that, that, that's the thing, it's like the penny's, the penny's got to drop for people. It's like, you can buy a commercial unit, so you can put your 20% or 20 or 30% down or whatever on something 500k. And, and something like 500k can yield you, how much is it a month, like six, six, eight grand a month? It, yeah, it, 20, it, 25 to 30k a year, so yeah. So, so, so how many of those would you buy as fucking many as you could, right? Yeah, I mean, and and this and this highlights you know the long term intentions of it. Somebody, I won't mention his name because it's probably not my place. But somebody you and I um, hung out with yesterday afternoon, he bought a property within a recent Leadland project, and he bought the property six months before it was complete. um, So he bought it off the plan, and we worked very hard as Leadland to get this investor a tenant. We managed to secure him a tenant before settlement, which means he didn't have to pay GST and he had income from day one. And the lease that he secured increased the value of the property. So he paid $630,000 for the property off the plan. Yeah. He settled on it on the 23rd of December and on the 18th of January he had an unsolicited offer for $923,000 for the property. The crux of it is he said no to the offer because he said, why would I sell you know, there's a 300000 just over $300,000 of profit in that after he pays the selling agent fees and he paid stamp duty going in. So he could sell up and he'd make a, a net gain of three hundred grand. Then he's going to pay one hundred fifty grand in tax when he has to do his tax. Yeah. So he's left with one hundred fifty grand. Do you know where he'd put it? In commercial real estate. Back into commercial real estate. But what he can do instead, that $300,000 capital gain, he's getting it valued again next week and he's going to be able to pull out 80% of that because his bank's got him on an 80% LVR. He can pull 80% of that, so he's at about 240-odd by the time he pays you know, uh, a valuation fee. He can release $240,000 of that equity and use that to buy commercial property. Yeah, I love it. And I because the it. income is higher in commercial property, the idea is not to sell, so you're not paying the tax along the way and you're not paying the selling agent fees along the way. Nah, I just said, mate, when, when, you, when, you, when it was all broken down and I, can, and I saw all the numbers and I see how these things work, I'm like, fuck, these are some impressive vehicles to put cash to make, you know, 
vast amounts of wealth in the future. Mm. I, I mean, obviously, you've got the crypto space, and I love that space, and it's all good, and that's all great. But in terms of like strong assets moving forward, I think commercial has to has to be has to be the play for everybody. Yeah, I agree. And, and um, commercial property is fantastic for me. There are a lot of other investment opportunities, and right now, crypto is one that is very highly talked about. But from my understanding of the crypto space, it's a great opportunity to be very involved. You know, you can make a lot of money from the crypto space in trading, getting in and out, following the, the movements of the market and these um, communities and forums and stuff that, that we're all uh, hearing of. But commercial property, you know, we're looking at minimum three-year lease terms, often yeah. five-year first uh, terms. So, And the three years are three plus three plus three, so potentially nine years of really having to, to give little thought to the property. Yeah, no, no it, is a, it is a hell of a better way of doing it because the, the thing that people don't understand about the crypto space, there's, and there's a lot of people that, have made, that I know that have made millions in crypto that are going to come unstuck at this point. The fact is, like the ATO right now in Australia, they when you file your tax returns, you have to you have to give them all all your wallet addresses, right? Because if you don't, the transactions won't balance on the sheet, right? And they know what you've been buying because they'll see it through your bank accounts in a lot of cases, mm. right? Because the on ramps that go onto crypto networks are all monitored by the ATO, so the ATO knows how much cash you're moving from your banks, whether it's personal, business, whatever, into the crypto space. So mm. they know they see what you move on there and, and eventually they see what you move off there back into your bank. Yeah, mm. They have to. They have to see it. But, in, but here's the thing that I didn't understand that I've had to learn the fucking hard way. When you, when you say, say, say I'm buying a fucking Bitcoin, right? I go, on, I go on, I buy the Bitcoin, I buy it. I pay tax on my money and my business, then I buy this Bitcoin. I buy a Bitcoin, pay 40 grand. I fucking move the the Bitcoin to Ethereum, to back to Cardano, back to this, in and out of trades, boom, 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 boom. Every single one of them fucking moves is a fucking taxable event. And unless I can prove I've moved it from one wallet to another, which is fucking hard to do, it's all trackable, but it's just a pain in the ass. Everyone's a taxable event at like 30%. Right, because they just flat they just flat rate tax you because they don't know how to deal with the crypto space yet. Yeah. So they just hit you with the oldest system in the book. Mm. Flat rate thirty percent. So there's people out there that have made fucking millions in crypto, mm. but at, at some point the ATO is going to catch them, and there's going to be fucking massive tax bills on the back of being in the crypto space because you. And another thing you shouldn't be doing in crypto, you should never buy it personally either, which, mm. which I made a mistake about buying some of my portfolio on a personal basis. You should never hold it personally. Mm. Always hold it in the trust or hold it in some kind of financial instrument that, that leaves you better protected for, yeah. a better, for a better tax rate. But that's my experience with the crypto space. There's, there's so much you have to be aware of in the tax side of things that people aren't aware of. And I think it's like that with any investment, very like... We, like we've sort of briefly touched about in the residential space it's you know you hear somebody oh my grandfather bought a house for 75 grand and sold it for a million dollars you know he became a millionaire of one property and stuff like that but it's when you delve further into it and you look at inflation and you look at the cost of the property over the years and the selling fees and the tax event you know the investment performance is based on what you get out of it at the very end and the like cash you say, exactly, yeah, and and like you say with the crypto, if you make a massive gains here, but you're getting taxed at every event, well, then your massive gains 
they're less massive and what matters at the end of the day is, is what yeah. you're left with um, and what you can spend on, on freedom. Yeah, because a lot of people are banking on the fact that they're pulling their crypto from a KYC exchange, which is like KYC, which are regulated, which are attached to the ATO, to a non-KYC. The problem is at some point in time, you've got to off-ramp. You've got to off-ramp that money. Now, a lot of people are, are doing things where they like swap their crypto for someone who's got a lot of cash and this, that, and the other, trying to get away with it. But then you've got to, then you've got to lose that cash. Mm. There's just so many, there's so many things. So eventually what I'm saying is that space gets highly regulated and tax bills come flying from all directions. And if you're not structured right in the crypto space, you're going to get pumped. Yeah. Because the, the ATO were, are well switched on to it. Yeah. And I, did, I didn't realize how switched on they were, were to it until I started. Obviously, I, I keep everything above board anyway, but I've got tax bills that I shouldn't have predicated on the fact that I've moved this to here, to here, to here, to here, and caused myself tax events that I didn't need to cause myself. Yeah. I mean, there's no flaws on the ATO, and what they don't know now, they'll aggressively move into because whether we agree with it or not, you know the company, the country requires tax income to to run the country. So when you see hundreds of millions and billions of dollars moving through, you know this system, the, the blockchain and the crypto world, and with now NFTs and such, the governments have to get their greedy little mitts on it, and they will invest, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in the technology to do that, and then they'll backdate it all. And ignorance is nothing in the eyes of is no excuse in the eyes of the ATO. So there'll be people with tax bills and the ATO is going to come knocking and there's I didn't know is, is no excuse in the eyes of the ATO so I mean um, it's something to there, consider there's, there's a lot there's a lot of tax bills coming mm. there's a lot of tax bills coming and it's going to shock a lot of people I just yeah. I just got a little insight to it and I'm like fuck you know that's savage yeah that's savage there's going to be there's going to be people that have become millionaires that get wiped out by tax bills that make them completely back to square one yeah, type of thing yeah. so it's just it's just the nature of the game because unless you invest the actual cash that you're making into assets on the back end of your crypto you, you you're still going to be in the same position because if you if you if you if you use some of your margin to go and buy all the stuff all the things all the toys all the things that look good on instagram forego your tax bill and then you have to pay your tax bill, so you pay yeah. your tax bill, then you've got nothing left. Yeah, you've you got no assets to because sell, Because yeah. you, 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 you spent all your money on shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. We went, went down it. But let's, I want to go, I want to, um, one of the things that I've always looked up to you on is your ability to structure and set goals, bro. Like, the, the way that you set goals and the way you structure your whole, your, your whole, your whole office and everything, like, it's just, you just set it up to win, like, you structure, you control everything, how it all flows on your board, you've got your, you've got your vision board there, if you, with, like, your big asset goals over here, and then the way that you structure your, break down your goals, I just want to, I really want you to break, break down how you go through that, because that is so valuable to the audience, because it's going to change some people's lives, I know that for sure. So it's something, um, I've been pretty focused on for the last 10 years, you know, goal setting, it's in every business or self-development book, but it's not delved into to the, the level that I think it should be. And I think, you know, proper goal setting is a huge strength and a, and a great ability in all areas of our life. So um, in the recent 10 years, it's something I really knuckled down on and I think that it's, it's helped me tremendously. So the way I started is I divided my goals into personal and business goals. And if I start with my business goals, I'll set goals that I want to achieve within the next 12-month period. Yeah. All my goals are 
driving towards my three or five year vision. I have a vision in my head for what I want for the next three or five years. I don't look too much past that because I think in today's society, things are evolving so quickly. I don't want to be bound by a 10 year vision when opportunities might come up that, you know, would potentially take me in a completely alternative, but, you know, more desirable direction. If I'm sort of guided by this long, long term vision, I think that might hinder that. Maybe it worked 20, 30, 50 years ago when the world wasn't moving quite as quick, but... My, my 12, I set my 12-month goals linking back to my three- to five-year vision, and then I break down those goals into smaller objectives. So one of my goals for this year is to do um, $100 million in commercial property sales, which is a great goal, and it looks fancy written down, and if I post it on Instagram, it'll blow up and all this sort of stuff, but without some further structure, it's really just... you know a Pie in the sky. It's nothing. So within that, I'll break down further. All right, how am I going to achieve $100 million in sales? All right, I've got $30 million of sales for um, our final stage at Springvale Business Park. So I'll put Springvale Business Park, $30 million. All right, I've got another project coming up that we're about to launch. There's $35 million there, so I'll put $35 million down. All right, now I'm, I'm getting closer. I'm at $65 million. How am I going to reach 100? Well, I clearly need another project to sell to reach another 100. So that will feed into another goal, which will be an acquisition goal, which becomes a smaller subset of this $100 million goal. So I'll have on there new project one, $30 million, and then new project two, $5 million or whatever I need to top up to my $100 million goal. So I'll set all these 12-month goals, and then I'll set smaller goals beneath them that will link back to the $100, uh, the $100 million goal in, in this example. And then finally after that, the next step I use is a quarterly objective. So I'll have my $100 million goal and then I'll have my subsection, Springwell Business Park, $30 million, next project, $30 million. All right, what am I going to do in Q1 that's going to help me move towards my Springwell Business Park, $30 million goal and my new project, one $30 million goal. Okay, I need to launch marketing strategy for Springwell Business Park. I need to... Um, prepare the marketing strategy for my next project. And I have these Q1, Q2, Q3, Q4 goals that build back to the previous objective, which builds back to the main goal of $100 million of sales for 2022. Fuck yeah. And then the final step for me, which is something that we were actually talking about a little bit yesterday, is I then link rewards back to my major goals. So if I do 100 million sales this year, I have a large goal, a large reward that I attach to that goal. And from a subconscious, almost spiritual point of view, there's great value in anchoring um, achievements with some sort of tangible physical object. It doesn't always have to be physical, but it could be, you know, when you can bench press 130 kilos, you're going to have a night out or you're going to have a weekend away. Or for me, it might be if I do... $30 $30 million in sales for a quarter, I'm going to buy myself a nice watch and, and there's these really, just a pivotal moment, the, the, the experience of buying the watch or the experience of booking the holiday anchors in that achievement yeah, and helps yeah, reward yeah. us and let us know we are levelling up. So um, I, I, I link those rewards back to the goals and then I do the same thing for personal goals. So it, one of my personal goals for this year is to be more of my authentic self and it's like, 
Again, sounds great, but what am I actually going to do to be more of my authentic self? And then I'll break it down. I'm going to read some, you know, confidence books and I'm going to explore some sides of spirituality and I'm going to do some subset tasks that are really going to help me be my more authentic self. And then I'll break that down into quarterly goals and then I might attach some rewards to those as well. Yeah, and I love the fact of how you've got not only monetary goals, but you've got like the spiritual goals and, and the looking inward goals and all these kind of goals that are in, in, in terms of enhancing self rather than just enhancing bank balances. Because that's where a lot of people, a lot of people when they think of goals, they just think the goal is, the goal is um, read, read 52 books have never read a book and then and then it's like no 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 just start by reading like one page a day mm. do you know what I mean or it's make a hundred million they're not at the first million it's like no 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 just just make a meal then make three then make five then make mm. ten then make do you know what I mean like yeah and show up each quarter or each month or whoever each day in an aspect you'll need to show up to make a million dollars it's not, you know, you don't yeah. set out on the 1st of January and try and make a million dollars and then you don't make it. So on the 2nd of January, you try and make a million dollars again. On the 1st of January, register your business or show up in your business with, with structured goals for the week. It's these little one percenters that help us build to our overall goals. And we all know that. It's just that I'm structuring it a little bit more. So I know how to show up each week. And when, and when you set goals around money you should also set goals around how much you value you plan to deliver the world predicated for the money that you're, you're asking the world for, I think. Yeah. So I, I, I believe in the future, you know, on, on from here, this, this podcast will do great things and empower millions of people. And if I empower millions and millions of people with a podcast and the content I put out, I believe that millions of dollars will flow to me on the back of that in some forms or another anyway. Mm. But predicated on the value that I put out to the world first you have to be you can't just be a goal where you go so what I'm saying is with your commercial real estate when you sell a hundred million dollars of commercial real estate yes it's a hundred million dollars of commercial real estate I get that Mm. but that is 64 owners or 60 owners of of businesses that you've helped empower to take their business to the next level yeah when you break it down absolutely that is those businesses, those 60-odd businesses have got a million customers, right, across Australia or across the world that they're, they're serving. Do you see how? Yeah, they, yeah. Do you see why I talk about value? Yeah. Because this is where people get fucked. It's like your goal is set on monetary terms in the 100 million, but it's all predicated on the value exchange right the way down the marketplace. Absolutely. Your value exchange to deliver the projects to these 64 businesses. These 64 businesses delivering their value exchange to these hundreds of thousands, millions of customers. Mm. And these customers getting fulfillment from buying these products from these businesses that you've allowed to facilitate in your commercial facility. That's how goals flow. Absolutely. And the measurable goal of $100 million, I mean, it's, it's nothing to me. It's linked back to my mission of delivering commercial properties that invoke a sense of creativity and inspiration, you know, to inspire business owners to do business and inspire their employees, their contractors, the delivery drivers, everybody who comes to these commercial premises. I want to be inspired and feel this creative flow that I feel when I get involved in my day-to-day business or when I have a conversation with you. You know, you feel that flow, you feel that hype. That's what I want to try and invoke with these properties. And the $100 million is, you know, represented by the the number of properties that I can deliver. And as you say, how that flow of energy flows right down to 
when the delivery driver pulls in and he's backing into the roller door and it's a clear height roller door and the sensor's on it so it can't come down in his van and it just creates a better environment. He's, you know, there's the cavoodle by the park bench with its owner and the, um, the landscaped garden entrance and how that makes him feel. That's yeah, really yeah, what yeah. drives me. The $100 million is just something that sort of can keep me accountable and keep me on track, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing I love about your projects is the fact that you've got a set of rules of these people can't, can't buy or rent in these projects that makes the whole thing work better. So, and obviously the aesthetics of the project, so like the, the, the industrial units you're making, I like, I could live there. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I, when I was looking around yesterday, I thought, oh, I could live here. Like it's, 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 could you talk into that and how you came and how you, and how you're developing that space? Cause I don't think there's many people in this country doing it like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting that you mention. you know, we don't like panel beaters. We don't, we, we don't invite panel beaters and, um, we specifically include them, exclude them, sorry, within our owner's court rules. So sometimes it's about saying, saying no as much as it is saying yes. And with the brand establishment that we have now, it's easy to say no when panel beaters come knocking on the door. We explain to them they're not welcome um, in our states. And there's places for panel beaters and we've all crashed a car or bumped a bumper and we all need panel beaters, but it's just not within a Leadland environment or a Leadland community. It's easy to say no to them now, but when we were struggling to get sales three or four years ago and we had the bank yeah. knocking on the door and we were worried about how this project was going to, to move forward and we had panel beaters knocking on the door offering us money, it was much tougher then to sort of say, you know, oh, no. You know, you're, I really want to say yes and take your money, but what I'm trying to deliver is a bigger vision. And in time, you know, I'll thank my past self, I'm hoping. My future self will thank me for to saying no to panel beaters early on. But it's, it's not just panel beaters, though. It's anyone that makes a mass amount of noise. Because if, if, you, if you have someone in, your com- in, in, the, in the environment when you've got like 60 or 70 tendencies in an environment, and you have someone making a vast amount of noise, it just detracts from the, the value of the area for everyone else. Absolutely. And, you know, while we take some credit for the environment that we're create, curating within our business parks, there's a certain number of levers we can pull. And at the end of the day, we're attracting the right people. We can't pick and choose because, you know, we only get so much insight into what the business is going to bring to the environment that, you know, that we're purporting. So... A panel beater, any heavy industrial users, straight away we know that they're not going to bring the right energy to our business park. But outside of that, we don't really get to know these business owners until they're in the estate and they're set up and they're having their impact. But what we can do is provide the right inclusions, the right aesthetics, the right design and the right amenity to attract those people. You know, from... The moment you enter our states and the established landscaping that we're putting in there, that, that sort of sets a tone for the estate as you, you enter it. The facades of the buildings and how we design them to, you know, capture your attention and it's not, you know, a gun barrel concrete jungle, you know, we're using um, timber lookalike products, they're made of aluminium because it's more environmentally friendly but it's a softer uh, environment and an aesthetic appeal. That attracts a certain type of user. The, the park benches, the communal garden areas, the uh, food and beverages, you know, the cafes that we're putting within our business parks. You know, one of our business parks currently, um, we, have, we could make an extra $600,000 selling this uh, tenancy to 
a there's Chinese operators in the area, and there's something to do with their visa when they buy these premises that helps them, um, you know, get their visa easier and it helps their family and friends get their visa. They will pay double what the property is actually worth just to have the business set up to get their visa. But they don't have an interest in delivering great oat cappuccinos or almond lattes and poached eggs with smashed avocado. They'll have dim sims and potato cakes or there'll be another operator who'll come in and he's just interested in pumping the business up and then you know selling it out having it all fall down whereas if we can partner with an operator the right operator who's going to deliver the right drinks and the right food and beverages for our target market that will encourage these businesses to come and then once you establish that community you know the operators who wouldn't fit in within that space they don't feel welcome within that space you know it's while we exclude panel beaters if a panel beater came into that warehouse that i showed you yesterday with the polished concrete floors the glass balustrade the matte black taps in the bathroom they're going to feel out of place you know pulling cars apart in the driveway and dropping oil on the concrete and stuff like that so it's about creating that um amenity that environment that product and then the the actual community builds from there yeah, because you've you've created communities now that are like um, heavily influenced by the e-com brands that are, are, are the future. Where, where you know they might be doing hair, one of them might be doing hair straighteners, one one of them might be doing fashion, one of them might be doing this. To put all those in the same space creates an energy as well. Absolutely, and there's two elements to it that are really cool. The first one is the non-financial or non-commercial element. You put like-minded people in an environment together and they just get along better. You know, we're at Springvale Business Park yesterday and somebody will zip past on an electric scooter and some two girls will be pushing their babies in their prams going the other way and it's just a really cool energy and environment of people who are just getting along because they're so like-minded. Then the other element of it is... is Everybody's getting their car done at e-tuners because Gordy, you know, he's a Mercedes-Benz tuner and um, everybody's walking around in South Street tracksuits because Harley's doing so well and she's at the front. And then, you know, there's studios. Jovan set up his studio and he's doing photography for all the e-commerce businesses within the, the park. And there's just this real collaborative environment. Everybody's sharing stuff on social media and it's just really purporting all the businesses on a financial level to elevate within our communities and that's something that i'm so proud to be a part of yeah and i think you're eventually going to even take it as you're taking it a notch further now aren't you with the amenities and stuff like that in the next in the next builds absolutely because yeah. i think we were talking yesterday about like you know pools about gyms about all this kind of all these kind of communal like real top end stuff that you can put into these business parks no other business parks doing this yeah and again it just comes back to my vision for Uh, curating environments and it's what levers can we pull to help attract the right people and then facilitate the engagement of these people with these areas so if you put 300 of the the best businesses like-minded businesses in a shitty environment they're not going to get along well either so it's about creating the space for them to be able to come out on their lunch break and sit in the sun and get to know each other and you know somewhere for the dogs to walk and um you know the boys to hit around a basketball or zip around on their electric scooters and stuff like that it's about delivering a space that encourages that interaction yeah and how, how have you gone about in getting so resolute on the vision I think a lot of it is just what would I view for my personal drivers. Like, um, you know, I'm focused on being more heart-led 
in leading my business than than um, logical or head led, and it's just more fun to be a part of. To be honest, it's once we get into these projects and we don't enter a project without knowing the ins and outs of um, the financial position of that project. So the project has to be feasible for so many different reasons. One, we can't work for nothing because we need to make a living. But right from um, you know achieving funding for the project, it has to be profitable. But once we've got that the project in that position, I've just encouraged the business to not lose sight but detract a little focus from the financial performance of the business part as as its own business. So when we're halfway through a project and we've sold out the entire thing and Tim comes up with an incredible concept to help facilitate our mission. It's going to cost us a million dollars to deliver this throughout the business park, but we think long-term it's just going to create a much better environment. That million dollars is coming out of our bottom line now because we've sold all the units. We'll do it. It's building our brand, which is commercial, and it's helping us showcase a product for later on, which is commercial. But all that shit aside, it's just about, for me, building business parks that we're proud of, you know, curating these communities that I'm incredibly proud to have have some involvement in and then building a legacy f- long term. Yeah, no, I like it, man. And what, where are some things where you've like recently like really like struggled to like overcome yourself? Because like, there's a lot of stuff obviously in regards, when you have this vision, when you have this massive vision like you have, there must be times when you, when you kind of look at the success you've had and, and like really like, do you, do you ever struggle to come to terms with it? Like in terms of like, you know, you've had this much success, but you're like, oh, you know, you, you kind of, do you ever feel like, sometimes I've spoken to successful people and they'll feel like undeserving of the success or, or do, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. I think um, imposter syndrome, I think, yeah, is, is yeah, what we've labelled yeah. it. Yeah, I'm a huge sufferer for that. It's something that I've done some work on and um, I think it's all predicated from childhood and, and upbringings, which often are largely positive and, mm. and beautiful, but there's things that we attach to in our younger selves that, that bring up this um, ideology of I either got lucky or I couldn't have done it with this or I can't do it again or, you know, I've got this, but look at all these people that don't have it. It's selfish of me yeah. to enjoy it. And it's something that I suffer with a lot. Um, in my younger days, I suffered with it incredibly. You know, I, I bought a nice car and... I would take the car out on a Sunday, I would park it and I'd get out of the car with my girlfriend and, and I'd see somebody, at this time I was early 20s, and I'd see a late 30s, 40-year-old man hopping in his car next to me with his wife, look at me, look at the car and look at the ground and I could just feel his, his pain of his comparison from me to him in front of his wife and that was something that broke me and I wouldn't take the car out again for a month or I'd park it well away from the cafe that I was going to, you know, in hopes that nobody would see what I was doing. Not because I was worried about judgment of me. That, that, that was something else. But in this particular circumstance, I was worried about how my success would make others feel. And then it was the same, you know, I bought a nice watch. You know, I'd have a Rolex and I could never wear it with a short-sleeved shirt because I'm only comfortable wearing it if I pull my sleeve over and hold, hold it, you know, hold my sleeve yeah, in my hand. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I didn't have people looking at it and, and I just had this 
vision in my head of people feeling down about themselves because of something that I was doing. It was the same with my immediate family. You know, I had, had a Rolex for two years. I would take it off in the car before I'd go to dinner with my family because I'd be worried about what they would think, how they are positioned in their life, if they were comparing that to where I was in my life and if that was to ever make them feel less of themselves, it was, it was something that would crush me. So, um, and that's flowed through to many different behavioural traits. One, how public I am with, with what I'm doing. Two, I guess my ambition, it probably curbs my ambition a little bit, thinking, you know, if, if I'm not comfortable parking a nice car out the front of a cafe, what am I going to do when I'm spending a million dollars on a car parking out of the cafe or, you know, pulling up in private jets or, you know, more watches and all these um, external factors that people see and associate with a level of success. What What's that going to mean for them? How's that going to make me feel? It's, um, yeah, it's something that I'm definitely still working through. What are some of the things then from your childhood that have, like, that that you've had to that you've brought through from childhood that you've had to really 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 deeply work on to kind of move through i think save your money is probably is probably the biggest one um as a as a younger person my father was very big on don't waste your money and any thought of spending money outside of either investment or, or the essentials and you know food shelter clothes was you should save your money. So um, I've had a bank account with the Commonwealth Bank since I was just after my fourth birthday. I set up a, a penny saver or, or whatever that was, Dolomite, I think that might have been called back then. And if I got $20 in a card for my 10th birthday, straight to the bank. You know, it, my friends would be buying lollies or they'd buy a skateboard. It was not straight to the bank. So I really had to break down... Um, these limiting beliefs and and these I guess generational um, ideologies to you know just spend some money for the enjoyment of spending money and I still have you know really um, really deeply rooted limiting beliefs on that and that shows up in in different you know behaviours and um, different thoughts of guilt of spending money and all that sort of stuff but um, I'll keep working at it. Yeah, mate. Yeah, I am. Um I've come through, obviously, from my childhood with loads of different traumas. Like, I suppose, I don't know if it's the same for you with, like, you know, anything related to, like, the boxing or anything. It was always tried to trying to prove a point, to trying to, to try and prove worth. Is that kind of why you got into the boxing space and why you pursued boxing? Yeah, and I think um, the self-discipline of it was something I desired as well. The self-discipline and the self-confidence... Um, you know, to put yourself, you know what it's like, brother, when you're in the ring with somebody and their sole intention is to inflict as much pain on you as they can, you're in there, it's it's one-on-one. There's no team to back you up. There's nobody to stop them. You know, the intention of the sport is to, is to, hurt, is to hurt somebody. So to get yourself in a mental state where you can do that to start with, get in there and then repetitively do that you know showing up heavy sparring sets on the weekend and then fights the the mindset that you have to take into that space um it's something that i think is very hard to develop in other areas of life and one day in your mind that does switch off like that when you become peaceful like the aggressiveness switches off in your Mm. head like you don't want to hurt anybody anymore. Yeah, and um, that's that's definitely something where I'm getting to now with a particular focus on boxing. You know, like we said the other day, when you see older fighters in the ring, 
I cringe at the damage that they might be doing to their body. And even in the younger circles now, when I'm watching competitive boxing and I'm thinking to, like, I'm trying to telepathically tell the ref to call the fight because somebody's taking shots they don't need to be taking. It's not a thought I would have had 10 years ago. Mm. Uh, I would be hoping for the knockout. Now I'm like, fight's mm. done, get the guy out, make him safe. Yeah. But, you know, early days, that aggressive mentality was something that I think really helped me gain the momentum that I needed in this space. You know, I was very young in an industry ruled by older generations. Because when you, when you was concrete, you got to, was it, you, you boxed at like, you got the Victorian title, didn't you? Yeah, I had two Victorian titles in, in, um, in two different weight divisions. Did, did, you, did you ever box the Australian or anything? I boxed for an Oceanic title and I lost on a split decision. Um, it was probably the hardest hardest decision of my uh, life. I've, I really felt that it was fight of the year. It's an incredible fight. Um, I actually dropped my opponent in the first round. I come back to the corner after the first round and thought, you know, I'm going to finish this in the second round. I got myself an oceanic title, but we clashed heads in the second round. I ended up with 13 stitches across uh, my left brow here, yeah. so I couldn't see out of one eye for the yeah. next nine rounds, and um, it was a bloodbath of a fight. It ended up fight of the year and. Um, you know, one of the most incredible performances I've seen by by two young men. I look back on it, and um, yeah, so who, who is that? Who are you fighting? I was fighting. His name has slipped my mind. It'll come back to me. But he's an English English fella. Um, he was fighting in Australia for a long time, and then he went back to to England. Oh fuck! Yeah, I didn't I? Didn't, I can't, I'd love to know the name, but yeah, man, I think boxing is one of them, one of them arts that you kind of you kind of you, you, you fall into, but the but the demographic that's involved in it and the undercurrent to ben, it. Ben Caps, sorry, mate. To Benny Caps, his name was. It just Benny comes Cap- to me. I, can't, Caps, I, yeah. I don't know him. But yeah. the, um, the community around it, it's, it's very... Um, it could be a very dark community around it as well. There's, there's, there's so much around boxing that people, that people don't see. There's a lot of there's, heavy energy in those boxing Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's why I'm saying for, for you to elevate to where you're at now you have to kind of step away from that energy. Yeah. You can't be around that energy and elevate to, to, to where you're at now. Yeah. In, in, in the space that you're at now. Cause yeah. Because carrying that energy into that space just wouldn't correlate. So, so it's interesting because the immediate years following my boxing, when I was trying to make my mark in this industry, I took that aggressive en- energy into meetings. And I would be meeting with two late 40s, early 50s, banking execs and I'd be walking in as a 23, 24 year old juvenile in this industry and the things I would tell myself going into this meeting is just preposterous. (laughs) Tell me. I I would be walking in and I'd be like, I'd be thinking these guys are worth $150 million, you don't know what you're doing but it doesn't matter because you could knock them out and leave the room if you ever got uncomfortable. I love the fact that you've said, I love the fact that you've said that. I love the fact that you said that because there's everything in boxing, as soon as you've done a little bit of boxing, sparring whatever been to the gym been around the amateurs whatever e- everything comes back to that yeah someone could be in a better suit than you and you think well just, just because you can't afford the suit you think in your head I could knock him out mm. and I used to have when I first came to Australia bro it was I walked in world gym and just because there was some jacked up Australian lads that were like Good looking, beefed up, juiced up fuckers. I was like, fuck, I knock you out. Yeah, yeah. And, and I carried that into every meeting. Ego, bro. Yeah. Ego, dissolving that ego, dissolving the ego um, from even even from being English, right? Because you, when you're English, like the way that English people are brought up, you think 
fuck it, I'm English, so we're better than everyone else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's, that's how, like, it is. It's yeah. like, we won the fucking war. Man. <laughs> do, 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 do you know what I mean? And it's that, it's that, it's that ego. As soon as you, as soon as you start, you need ego because you have that little bit of drive and that little bit of now, and that little bit of, ooh, yeah. Yeah. You have to have a bit of ego, but it's about reining that fucker in. And that, that is something from boxing, from being around that community, always comes out everyone always thinks that mm. when someone's got something nice you always I could knock him out yeah. that is the fucking yeah. first thing it was you know that insecurity of these guys are more experienced than me they wave you know yeah. their wealth just you know trumps mine and they know what they're doing and I don't but it doesn't matter because at the end of the day I could just knock them out <laughs> leave the room and feel good and feel good about myself so I lo- I, that, I, that dissolved over a few years and I think like I I was way too aggressive, not not in a confrontational, you know, yeah, but yeah. In, in the Just business in sense. In the business sense, I was I was far too aggressive early days as well. But um, once I sort of, you know, did some work in in the mindset and a little bit in the spiritual space and got my ego in check and um i just started operating differently and yeah. um it helped elevate me to another level as well. Do you have mentors? I do, I have a few. Yeah. Some uh, are very aware of our mentor-mentee relationship. Some are. And it's something that I, I get asked it a few times a week, can you be my mentor? And what I encourage for people that are seeking mentors is to take bits and pieces from different people. Yep. Um, in order to, it's, to find a mentor, it's tough. Everybody's busy. Everybody's got things on. But the biggest mentors that I have, we're involved in a commercial relationship as well and it helps keep the mentor-mentor relationship accountable, professional professional, and on track. So it might be somebody within a bank, you know, and they offer me advice and we have lunches and, and we talk about things far outside of the scope of the commercial banking world. But when I call, he answers because we have a commercial relationship and, and there's certain standards and expectations that come with that. So that's the easiest way I've found to sort of develop those one-on-one mentor-type um, relationships. There's others that I have developed where I've just reached out to people with no commercial strings and said, listen, I love what you've done and I admire you as a person. Is there any chance that we can sit down and have coffee? And we've developed a friendship and I've had you know, incredible, incredible guidance um, f- from some of those people. And then there's people in my circle that... Um, you know, they inspire me and guide me more than they would know, you know, within my friendship circle. Who are the people that, that inspire you? Troy, you know, Troy Candy. Yeah. Um, the way he leads his life is incredibly inspiring. Um, the way that some of my other friends, you know, with their children, the way that they're making time for their business ambitions while juggling their families, you know, that inspires me in a different way. And then, um, you know, some of my other close friends are, are doing really well in the business space um, and they inspire me. So I think when, when seeking mentorship, it doesn't just have to be, Frankie, can you be my mentor? Can we go and talk about something that's on my mind? We can inadvertently talk about something on, uh, that's on my mind because, you know, we're in a friendship circle or I can get value from you without even knowing you. Like um, the gent we bumped into yesterday down at Spring Valley Business Park that recognised you from 100 metres away. Wow. So he said, yeah. I know that bald geezer over there. Wow, wow. Yeah, that was, pretty, that was a pretty special moment for me, mate. You're, you're a mentor to that, to that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, James, his name was. Yeah. James, his name was. 
James nice James looks up to you. James has got incredible value from what you what you do. And until yesterday, I, d- know, I, didn't, I didn't didn't know James. I didn't, I didn't know James. No. Yeah. No. So you know, there's so much value that we can scope out and, and little bits and pieces of knowledge um, from from everybody far and wide. And it doesn't have to be this sort of relationship to get that value. That that moment amazed me because I thought because it actually you. You imagine, right, when, you're, when you put your heart and soul into something like what you do and what I do, sometimes you think to yourself, fuck, am I, am I getting anywhere? Because, yes, I'm getting good rankings in certain environments on the podcast game and I'm slowly working my way up, but sometimes I'm like, fuck, am I even fucking doing the right thing here? Like, I could, I could make a lot of money if I just focused on this business rather than doing this and this but it's like days like yesterday when we stood there and I'm in, in the back end of Melbourne right? hardly hardly a soul knows I'm here like mm. we're just in a business park looking at a commercial development and someone comes out who I think is coming over to talk to you guys and he's like oh, I recognise that fellow I want to talk do you know what I mean it's, it's, yeah. not, it's nice yeah. to know that someone someone this far away from my physical location where I live is getting value from from the people that I'm bringing to the table and for maybe some of the insights hopefully that I give along the way as well because that's another thing right I'll get people messaging me and saying hey Frankie you're talking a lot on the podcast in between the guests I'm like but that's the reason like I want to give insights from 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 this journey as well too I want to give value to you as well do you know what I mean you've got yeah. to talk to do that you can't do that without communicating absolutely yeah. do you know what I mean like yeah. it's not that type of podcast where it's going to be like question answer question yeah. answer it's not, it's not really that it's just going to be a conversation it's yeah. yeah it's going to it's going to be a conversation with like to try and bring out value of people to other people and that was a very special moment for me because it just cemented why I do it because mm. that's another thing like how much purpose have you got in doing what you do? Yeah. A it, shit ton. An right? incredible amount. And I think it is tough to do things at any elevated level without that purpose. Right. So in, in your words, for the people listening, what is the best way for them to, to find it, give themselves it, give themselves permission to have it? What is the best way to feel the purpose that... Me, I, you can tell when I talk on this podcast how fucking much I love this mm. thing, right? When you're showing me around a project, you can fucking you're you're fucking wired, you're fucking that. Like you just you just juiced up about what you do. How can we communicate that right now? How can you communicate that right now to the audience so that they understand how they can feel that in every element of their life too? In every element of their life. Well, just just start by how you'd how you'd start to cultivate it because I, I, I want I want your insights in how to, how they can cultivate it. It's a tough one, bro. To be honest, um, but I think exploration is probably a good place to start. You know, tasting different things. Like ah, that. absolutely. You know, you come out of school, you might have got good grades in a particular area, not because you like the subject, because your mate wasn't in that class, so you're more focused, or you got on good with the teacher, or something like that. And that leads you to a fucking 40-year career, you know, five years of further education and a 40-year career because 
you know, you weren't distracted in that particular class. You got no fucking interest in, you know, medicine, but your mum said you should be a doctor, they earn good money, and you spend the next 40 years wishing away 8 to 10 hours a day, you know, hoping for the weekend. So I think it's about removing any shackles that your culture, society that you're currently in, or your previous generations being parents, grandparents, have put on you, and just... You know, trusting your intuition and and having a bit of a look around without any preconceived notion for this is where I want, this is where I need to be, I need to follow this timeline, and if I haven't achieved this by the time I'm X, then I'm a failure. It's about sort of try, trying to use your gut to navigate this world and and find where you really fit in. Here's one for you that I've, that I've, that's just come to me. It's like how many times have you thought something in your life? in my life in, 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 if you're listening to this in your life too it's like how many times you thought something had a preconceived idea about something but then when you actually really analyse it say you have, a, a, have a, a, an opinion of some type of person right and you've got this preconceived idea and that might have been that might have been instilled from your parents or might have been instilled from your sister or might have been instilled from your friends but it's not that's not actually been, ever been physically true in your reality mm. so this do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah. You, you've made a preconceived idea on how someone looks or how someone or, or how something is in life. Like um, multi-level marketing is a scam, or this you have because because it's the because it's the it's something that NFTs are a scam, or or you've got a preconceived idea that, that this type of girl isn't for you because of this reason or whatever. But you, you've you've bought into that. But you didn't even have the idea. Someone's implanted that idea. It's not even your idea. You've never given yourself the fortitude to develop your own, your own feeling. You've just took on someone else's thoughts. So a good thing to do right now would be to fucking get a pen and paper out and write out all your fucking preconceived ideas on all mm. these different things in life and actually look at it and be like, holy fuck, I've believed that for fucking 30 years of my life. Mm. And I don't, it's, I don't even think it's the truth. <laughs> but yet, I've operated from an operating system that believes that is that. Yeah? When it's not the truth. Yeah. And, and uh, so, many, so many elements in my life, mate, I've operated from an operating system that was instilled in me when I was a kid that wasn't the truth. We all have, Frankie. And, and to be honest, I think if, if anybody's listening thinking, I don't have any of those sort of preconceived notions, it's, they just don't know that they're there. Um, because that's how we're raised, you know, and with love and good intention, our parents are instilling in us, you know, what they think will hold us in good stead for direction in our lives. And some of them are limiting beliefs. Absolutely. And, and I'm sure many of them were passed down from their parents with good intentions and, and so on and so forth. And then you get these generational limiting beliefs that... Um, like we've briefly talked about it, it's it's up to somebody to put their hand up, take on the responsibility, and say, "I'm going to do the work to change this and uh, and try and heal heal this limiting belief and, and change my mindset so I can pass down to my children something to replace it with." Yeah, but and the thing is with you as well, you've you've took on coaches and you read a lot of books. Just give people an insight into like the kind of books you're reading and the coaches that you take on in order to develop yourself. Because in in terms of to achieve what you've achieved, you have to, you can only achieve what you've achieved when you de- develop your mind to a certain point to be able to get to that level. Because it's, it's all mindset. Yeah, it's all mindset. Absolutely, and I think it starts with intention. You know, I have an intention to be a better person 
in so many different elements of my life. So if one of them is I want to be a more grateful person and I'm going to read Think Like a Monk that I've just finished reading now and that really, it helps position my thought process, it questions thought processes that I've had for years that might not be right and it also passes on a little bit of knowledge that I might not have come across before and that links back to what I want to be as a person and how I want to show up and how I want to feel. Then other books I might read for, you know, um, professional development uh, endeavours. So, you know, there's so many, you know, the authors like Tony Robbins, Gary Vee, um, these sort of guys and, and the, the content that they're producing, either be it books or in audio or yeah. YouTube or the stuff they're putting on social media. I know Rich Dad Poor Dad had a very profound effect on your Incredible, life. incredible, life-changing book for me. You know, there's... A, there's Do you remember the age you were when you read it? I think I would have been maybe 11 or 12 years old. Yeah. Yep. You're so lucky to read that 11 or 12. Yeah. Man. So lucky. I didn't find that book until I was like 26, 27. Yeah. I'll, my kid will be listening to that on, on audio before he's come out the way, I reckon. That's, yeah. Was, there was, Such um, a simple book to read as well. For, yeah. And, and, you know, it's a book that allows... Rich Dad, Poor Dad um, is a book that... Um, and the Cashflow Quadrant they're books that allow you to understand how what is actually truly an asset and what yeah. is what is a liability because there's many things in life that people think are assets cars houses that are actually liabilities on your balance sheet in life and i think if you just read that one book and understand you know it's your job in life from a financial point of view to put yourself in the best position to move you move move from your liabilities column move get rid of all those liabilities and put put more in the assets column mm-hmm. or put more assets in the asset enough assets in the assets column to fund your liabilities exactly yeah it's I like, mean, that's when you're having some fun that's yeah. that's when you start having some fun but just to understand the whole concept of that that is a powerful book yeah yeah a life-changing book I, I think there's a couple of moments in my life where by chance that Things have really propelled me. There's somebody who I connected with who became a mentor back in 2015, I think we would have connected. That propelled my professional career enormously. And then that book back, you know, whenever it was, when I was 11 or 12 years old, that really, really had a profound impact on me. But another thing that I also think has had a profound impact on you that, that isn't what a lot of entrepreneurs talk about a lot of people in business talk about that I want to drill into you and I drill into this with every guest because it's so fucking important because it always gets missed the power of like the, being with the right woman and the relationship that you're in and, and the grounding that that gives you because mm-hmm. I've seen how you and Jesse are and how you move around the house and how you are together and it's just like a beautiful thing for me to see as mm-hmm. someone to, to still think oh there's hope in, there's hope that this thank is you bro that means a lot I'm proud to hear that there's hope that there's, there's this kind of stuff out there for me yeah um, and I think it's a man's role to elevate to the level where he attracts that kind of woman into his life mm-hmm. like, but how powerful and important has it been in your journey to have that supporting person and that person that you can help elevate together and, and work as a team around you because a lot of people have this that successful is like it's a common denominator i think yeah yeah absolutely and, and for so many different reasons but you know relationships they take work they take work jesse my our relationship now it doesn't take work but in the early days to establish how we wanted to show up in our relationship it took work and, and it was something that we've developed over a number of years to it's it is without a doubt the thing that I value most highly in my life right now 
and from a commercial sense to be able to come home and have the support of a loving partner that isn't just supporting you when it suits them. You know, you, I've yeah. been in relationships before where, you know, you big, they're your biggest fan and they're cheering you along and, yeah, go after your ambitions, but it's the second that ambition sort of takes some attention away from them, then the ambition becomes the devil and the support sort of starts waning and it's that, you know, it's conditional love. But something that Jessie's done a lot of work on herself and, and I've learned through her is that unconditional love, it knows no competition or, or misdirection. It's about loving somebody when they're doing things that bring you joy and, and bring abundance into your life, but still holding that love for them when they're pursuing something else or they're misdirected or they're in a bad space and still being able to show up and and hold space for them and and keep that love i think it's about loving all parts of you and all parts of them as well it's like the darkness and the light yeah like this is this is something that i think people get confused they 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 see um, successes in people's lives they see things that people have got they see they might even see girlfriends this and the other and they might want a part of someone's life but I always say to them, look, if you want a part of their life, you've got to be willing to take their whole life. And what people don't see on the back of that is the fact of like, you know, you could, they, they could be a, a, like a, a really horrible parent or a horrible husband or a really bad girlfriend or, you know, or, 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 or abusive or there's all these or other depressive or, thoughts or, 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 or limiting beliefs or, or stuff yeah. that you can't see. You're the can't, yeah. or the can't see. Yeah. Like, or, or just, just like fully like, emotionally unavailable like yeah. you, d- you just you don't know there's so many people out there with, with, with the the nice things on the ex- that you see on the exterior that, that that get shown on like the instagrams of the world and all these social media apps that that showcase all this stuff but it's like what's what's the if you want that part you've got to be willing to take all parts of everything yeah. and i think i think the most beautiful thing for me to come into your home your jesse's home and just see how you are and the energy and how this feels homely and i could i I when I walked in here the other day, um, I, w- I looked around. I felt I felt the energy of this place. You know, the dogs and everything. I thought this is this is great because if you can come home and 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 this is your this you can anchor yourself here, you can go and achieve anything. Whereas a lot of people, some some people that, that achieve success go home and their apartments are shit old mess or they're just sat there. They might have a beautiful apartment, but they're lonely. Mm. That's no way to live to have yeah. to have all that and abundance in a financial sense, but not have it and emotional as well. Yeah, to see the balance here is just a beautiful thing. I think another thing is Jesse and I we're each other's biggest teachers. You know, being in the energy of each other and the constant communication and feedback and the bits of education and stuff. Jesse earned more money last month than she earned in the first year out of uni um, working full-time in a public relations job. You know, her financial knowledge and her business acumen in the last four years is something that has developed enormously. And um, I like to think that I've, I've played a small part in that in being, you know, offering some elements of mentorship in our romantic yeah, relationship. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then the other side of that is Jessie's doing... In- 
an incredible amount of work in the spiritual space and the self-development space. You know, she's doing, she's uncovering, you know, Wounds. hard, exactly Wounds. right. She's, and you know what that works like, bro. It's like, Mate. I'll go work 16 hours a day, seven days a week before I want to uncover some of the shit that I've packed away for, you know, 29 years. She's doing that work and the conversations that we have when we're sitting on the couch after dinner or, you know, in bed nine o'clock at night, what I've learned from her doing that work and how that's changed me as a person over the last five years has been an incredible transformation as well. So, you know, elevating each other and leveraging the work that, you know, and the growth that we're having in our personal lives to better each other and ultimately better the, the couple that we yeah, are. Yeah, so, there's so, so much power in, in, in keeping, like, you know, being healthy and just obviously caring about the other person in the relationship and, and, and facilitating each other's growth, mm. which is what I see here. It's like... That's why I wanted to touch on it in this. It's just important that people understand that you know this does exist on a, on a, on a high level. There are people that are operating that are doing well in there. They're doing well on the outs external, but are also doing the internal work at home as well and and, and together. That's mm. that you don't you don't see it often, man. No, no. You don't. It's a fucking very very good thing. If you were going to give some advice and guidance like if you had to check out the planet yeah, if you if you if this if, if you know if this is it if this is the last podcast you do you check out me and you get off the podcast we both drop dead right hard thing to think about but if you're going to leave a lasting impact and legacy in the world in, in a in a in a paragraph statement um a nugget something you can leave that's tangible that people can take and they can grow with and they can use to empower them throughout their life from the wisdom that you've had while you're on the planet, what would it be? I would want people to think bigger and be patient. So something that I've noticed in my own development is when we set goals for ourselves, be it personal goals or business goals, that are within our achievable logical mind, they're not big enough, especially if we're thinking, you know, two to three years' time. Because something that I think is achievable today in two to three years' time is a non-consequential goal. And what I would want to be setting for myself in three years' time, if I was setting that goal in three years' time, I can't conceptualise how I'm going to get to that point yet. Because so much development can happen within that time. So I think, you know, we set two limiting goals on ourselves you know be a personal or professional um and then we underestimate the time that we have you know i think it's an incredible thing to be grateful and cherish every moment that we have but from a development point of view we play too small a game you know we we focus on how good of shape can i get in the next 12 weeks or imagine if i lifted heavy and ate good protein for six months but it's like you'll be on this planet in reasonable shape with you know the the medicinal development that we've had in our lifetime we'll be here for 80 90 years functioning like this so what we could achieve and and how we could grow over that period of time is something that i think um we we tend to really lose focus on yeah i love it i love it it's just it's just knowing that the game that you're playing is you know Obviously, that we can get knocked over by a car or, or adverse things can happen. Obviously, Absolutely. obviously that's the thing. But like you say, you know, look at it. Look at it. this is why I have a statement in my mind that I always work to, and it's like I judge everything on this: long-term games with long-term people, 
mm. long term games with long term people if it isn't a long term game with long term people I ain't doing it mm. and that's why it's like I've not got shit loads of podcast ads just random shit that I could have had I could have had loads of random shit on the fucking front of this podcast random shit some of it would have resonated some of it wouldn't just just to make money but that's a short term game whereas I'm going you know I might have a sponsor or whatever or I might have something or anything but I'd be judged on long term games with long term people not short term games you get what I'm saying yeah 100% and that's exactly what you're saying with that statement it's like long term games long term people yeah because if you're not playing them games you're just in this constant cycle where you have to re-innovate 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 mm. because you, you keep having to ch- you keep having to make the change that you don't want to make because you're not playing the long term games from the start yeah yeah absolutely bro I couldn't agree more yeah Oh, another question I want to ask you on the podcast before we go, right? Would you ever be open to to now you've gone more spiritual? Would you ever be open to like I've not done I've not done this, but but I've read about these like these DMT trips and um, these like magic mushroom trips. I've never done a magic mushroom trip. I've I've tried microdosing. It's fucking good. Like only like once every six weeks or something. Like I don't want to get real creative. But have you ever thought about exploring those two spaces? Absolutely, I haven't yet. But um, I'm definitely considering mushrooms in a controlled environment Same. with the right intention. DMT and like ayahuasca. Yeah. 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 It's something I'm really uh, interested and inquisitive about. But I think I'd have to build a little bit more, bit more yeah. confidence in my... That ayahuasca scares the shit out yeah, of Yeah. Yeah. 100%. <laughs> like the things I've... I, I've heard that it's like, you know... Ease into it with mushrooms, then maybe if, if you're having a good time and you, on your long your spiritual journey, try DMT and then ayahuasca is like if you're really ready to face off with some shit. Well, I heard that DMT is like when you when you take the DMT, like for 15 minutes, just sends you off into fucking the, into the stratosphere. Yeah, like, just like sends you off and then you're back in the room. So for us, it's 15 minutes, but apparently it's life changing. Yeah, my, yeah, my, my mate says it's like it's life changing because it takes it takes you out of your body and allows you to see yourself from from above. Apparently, mm. as well, the way that my mate explained it. But um, but mate, I think um, we, me and you will have to do a controlled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll do it together. Yeah, yeah, we'll yeah. A, I, I was wondering if he's open to it because I've been looking for someone to do a controlled one with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would never, I'd never do uncontrolled. I'd yeah. have to go. I'd have to go like to a proper professional facility and do yeah. it because I don't do. Do the do do anything like that? Yeah, 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 I, yeah. I can't just sit in my apartment and take four grams of mushrooms and go into space. No, 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 it's just no, not, no. It's just not me, man. It's just no. not me. But I just thought, I just thought, that, yeah, it's <laughs> an interesting space. It is. It, it is. is. I, yeah. Do you know what? That's another space that I think is going to have some massive growth. Is is uh, all that like those medicinal um, medicines, like mm-hmm. plant based medicines, like with it, with the mushrooms and stuff? I think it's a massive space. Yeah. And I think with psychedelics in the next 10 years, legalized everywhere in controlled environments, and we'll be seeing, like, that'll be a, that'll be a wave of, of yeah. like, small, these small businesses that get set up where you just go do psychedelic trips. Yeah. 100% I see it yeah. in the future. Yeah, 100%. and I mean, uh, microdosing as well. It's enormous in Silicon Valley, and it has been for, I think, a number of years there, you know. For well, it opens up more neurological pathways, allows your brain to fire in more directions. So all these closed-off places in your mind um that you're not accessing because you're only because you because you're like a caveman and you're only accessing a certain part of your brain it allows it allows to fire and rewire all these new neurological pathways and then you can think differently 
mm. and it just it's just amazing what can come when you just just amazing how you how you can feel and how you can elevate with that kind of stuff yeah so it's a beautiful thing you should you should uh, I'm not going to say you should try it but you should try it <laughs> Dr. Frankie <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, you got to do it. Yeah, bro, this is sick, man. I'm so happy. I'm so hyped to have you on, man. Thank you so much Thank for your you, time. Brother. Thank you so much, man. And guys, man, do me a fucking solid favor on this. Yeah, share this about, right? Um, send us some messages. Hopefully, you've got some real insights into not only not only like the personal development stuff, but like um, the relationship side. I wanted to get in about the commercial versus residential in there. I just wanted to have a conversation with my mate, really, and it's been been a pleasure to to become friends with you, bruv. And uh, mate, follow him on Instagram at Oscar Ledlin. Um, I'll tag him in this as well. Send uh, at Frankie Lee if you want to follow me too. Send us both a message on Instagram. Let us know how you felt about it. Give us some feedback. I hope this has served to add more value in your life today. I hope it's hit your ears at the right time. And like always, guys, I'm fucking passionate as fuck about this podcast, and it fucking lights me up. And Every day I turn up and I have these kind of conversations, I just fuck man. I can't even. I can't even describe me. And uh, just again, thank you so much for your time, bro. Thank you, mate. It's been a, it's been a pleasure to to witness the passion. In, yeah, in, fucking in real life, and I appreciate you having me on, and I, I yeah, appreciate you. I appreciate it, guys. Much love. Like, subscribe, share it with your friends. Put as many people. Put this in as many people's ears as you can. This is your duty. Let's go. Don't forget to subscribe to the Frankie Lee Podcast.